All right, well, let's take our Bibles and open them to Genesis 35. Verses 21 through 26. Actually, not verses 21 through 26. Verses 22 through 29. And um, you might be wondering, can you reach back there and grab Casey and pull her in here just for a second? All you have to do, Casey, is stand there. It's a form of soft shaming, so it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so you might wonder, like, where all these kids go. And you're, as an adult, saying, I don't care where they go, just give me a little. <laughs> but we, we really have a vibrant ministry. Um, Casey Cunningham has really played a huge role. In that all of these kids are going to be taught the things of God. It's not a, as you talk to these kids, it's not a babysitting service. And all the, all the birthdays that you saw on the screen are special, but Casey had a very special birthday or is having a special birthday. Um, I was told never to give someone's age from the pulpit, so Oh, excuse me, I have to cough here. <laughs> 50. <laughs> Got that out of my system. So she had a pretty monumental birthday, and I just wanted to recognize her. So she's in the back. Let's give her a round of applause. You're all good. You're good now. She can go back to work. Uh, the title of our message this morning is A Purposeful Life, A Purposeful Life, as we take a look at verse 22b through uh, the rest of the chapter, trying to finish it this this week, Lord willing. God, of course, here in the book of Genesis, as we have been studying verse by verse, is raising up a special nation, the nation of Israel, um, a nation that he will use to bless the world. And one of the key players in this special nation is none other than Jacob. Jacob has been at Bethel. He has been told, or he begins to move rather, down south to Bethlehem. And it's there that a number of things are happening. You have his, first of all, his journey to Bethel, where there's a divine appearance. And then as he is moving uh, from Bethel to Bethlehem, there's the birth of a special child named Benjamin. That's a great thing to think about this time of the year because there's going to be another special child, isn't there, uh, born in Bethlehem. And then there was that situation as this trajectory was happening that Reuben uh, loses his birthright. And you say, well, I want to hear about the concubine and all these things. Well, we're not going to talk about concubines today. Uh, maidservants maybe. Um, but you can hear about that last week as we sort of went into it and tried to develop it. It's basically a situation where Reuben is trying to grab the reins of power that really do not belong to him. And so this uh, chapter ends with a rehearsal of Jacob's dozen, his 12 sons, who are going to become Israel's 12 what? Tribes, and now at the very end of the chapter, the great patriarch uh, Isaac will die. So you actually have two deaths recorded in this chapter. Rachel has died giving birth to Benjamin, and then we see uh, sort of the end uh, of the earthly sojourn of Jacob's father, Isaac. But before we get to that, we kind of have a rehearsal of Jacob's dozen. The, way, the reason the Bible keeps repeating 
itself is it saying, watch these 12 very, very carefully because they are destined to play monumental roles in the life of God's special nation, the nation of Israel. So the first thing that we have there, second part of verse 22, is an introduction. It says, now there were 12 sons of Jacob, introduces this section. And then as you move into verses 23 through 26, you have sort of a restatement of Jacob's sons or Jacob's uh, dozen. The first uh, group mentioned are the six sons that were born through Jacob's first wife, Leah. And if you look at this picture, you see Jacob over there to Leah, I think on the far left. And here are the children that came forth from that union. Verse 23, it says, the sons of Leah, and here are the sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. Now, you'll notice that it mentions Reuben as the firstborn. But Reuben lost a privilege. There's a reference to this in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 4, where Jacob is going to say this to Reuben, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. He doesn't say your salvation is canceled. He says you shall not have preeminence because you went up into your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Reuben, taking his father's concubine, bridesmaid, grabbing, as we studied last week, that act, which essentially is used many times in the scripture. It's, it's a real act, but it also signifies wanting authority. Reuben, involved in that particular sin, didn't cancel his salvation, but it certainly caused him to lose a right or a privilege. I'll explain that privilege in just a second. But uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 in the Millennial Kingdom talks there about the 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben being one of them. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 47 gives us a tremendous picture of the 12 tribes of Israel and their land allotments in the millennial kingdom. And you'll see Reuben there uh, along with Simeon and Levi. But the three of them, Simeon and Levi in the prior chapter, chapter 4, Reuben in this chapter, actually the prior verses, chapter 5, did something in sin to cause him to lose a privilege that he could have had. It also mentions here Reuben the firstborn through Leah and then also Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are birth number two and birth number three. They lost a privilege. And that's referenced in Genesis 49 verses five through seven. It says Simeon and Levi, their swords are implements of violence. In their anger, they slew men. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So with all of that being said, what happened in Genesis chapter 34 is they, much to Jacob's chagrin, went way overboard in vindicating what happened to Dinah. They did not follow the principle, let the punishment fit the crime. They destroyed an entire town, an entire city, an entire Canaanite people group. And because they acted with justice, but it was weighted unfair justice, disproportionate justice, they too lost a privilege. 
So Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, all because of sin, lost certain privileges. And what was that privilege? That privilege was being gonna was to be the to be, I should say, the tribe that will bring forth the Messiah. That's a great scripture, by the way, to think about this time of the year as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And what we discover in the Bible is the privilege of being the tribe that would bring forth the Messiah fell to the fourthborn, whose name was Judah. This also will become a subject in Genesis 49, verse 10, where Jacob will say to one of his sons, Judah, the scepter, that's authority, that's messianic, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet until Shiloh, that means peace, coming from Shalom, until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a a clear messianic reference to the fact that there's a Messiah coming through Israel's line, and the tribe that will bring forth the Messiah will be Judah. Well, why does that privilege go to the fourthborn and not the firstborn or the secondborn or the thirdborn? Why does it go to Judah, but it doesn't go to Reuben? It should have gone to Reuben. And when he disqualified himself, it should have gone to Simeon and Levi, but they disqualified themselves. How come the privilege went to Judah? And the answer is that's what sin does. Sin in the life of the believer doesn't cancel the believer's salvation any more than Reuben or Simeon or Levi are eradicated from the millennial kingdom. They're still prominent in the millennial kingdom. But what sin will do it will, is it will disqualify us from privileges that God wants us to have that go above and beyond salvation. There are countless people that I know in ministry, uh, too many to even develop account who are gifted in the Lord and at one time exercised influence in the body of Christ that are no longer in those positions. Why are they no longer in those positions? Because they went back into the sin nature in some way, shape or form. And it was found out and they had sort of a a lifestyle of habitual sin. And because each of these individuals, in fact, are born again and regenerated and their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and nothing can take us out from the Lamb's Book of Life, they did not lose their salvation. What they lost was the privilege of being in ministry because being used by God in ministry is not a right, it is a privilege. And God is going to use the person who is not sinless, but sins less. Because they take seriously the middle tense of their salvation, which is their progressive sanctification. And we at Sugarland Bible Church ask our congregation to nominate elders and deacons. As you study 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 13 it will give you the qualifications for elders and deacons. And all of those qualifications do not relate to talent or abilities. They don't even relate to spiritual gifts. In fact, the only thing it really says is an elder must be apt to teach. It doesn't even say he has to have the spiritual gift of teaching which is a real spiritual gift, just apt to teach. Everything else on that list, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, deals with character. You know, he, he must not be a malicious gossip, not be a drunkard, um, not a person of uh, that's of a pugnacious, sort of a fighting type of spirit where they're creating internal turmoil within the body of Christ, etc., etc., etc. All of those things relate to character. Not gifting, but character. And if a person doesn't have the right character, they could be extremely gifted, but they're not qualified for leadership. 
they, they forfeit a privilege that God would want them to have, but they disqualify themselves. That, in essence, is what's happening here with Reuben because of his prior sin and also Simeon and Levi. And so it becomes a great warning to us not of the typical message you hear about this, you're going to lose your salvation and go to hell, but rather there is a forfeiture of something above and beyond salvation that God seeks to give. And in this case, the great privilege was being the tribe to bring forth the Messiah. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 now says to Judah, the first, the fourthborn, He is going to be the one through his lineage that the Messiah will come from. There is a map of all of the 12 tribes of Israel and Jacob under prophetic utterance in Genesis 49 verse 10 says of all the tribes, the Messiah is going to come through a special tribe the tribe of Judah, not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know why that's true, because you've read Genesis 34 and Genesis 35, but he is coming through the fourth born Judah. So you'll find this prediction in Genesis 49, verse 10. You'll also find it in Revelation 5, verse 5 where John the Apostle talks about how Jesus was qualified to open, yet future, the seven-sealed scroll, which will bring God's kingdom to the earth. John looks at that seven-sealed scroll, book of Revelation, and he understands what that seal represents. This scroll, rather, represents that's sealed. And he understands that it relates to the title deed to the earth. If that scroll is not opened, then the title deed to the earth remains in Satan's control forever. And John at that prospect starts to weep. I mean, that would make me cry too. This world in its current state just continues on and on and on without the intervention of God. But then he realizes that someone is qualified to open the seventh sealed scroll. And it says in Revelation 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. He stops weeping because he realizes that Jesus is qualified to open this seven-sealed scroll, which will ultimately bring God's kingdom to the earth. And he gives Christ's qualifications. The first thing he mentions is he was born from the right tribe, the tribe of Judah. Not the tribe of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, but from the tribe of Judah exactly as the book of Genesis and prophecy demands. And within that tribal area is a special city called Bethlehem. It says in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, now in the United States, for example, you can have two cities with the same name. Uh, just try to Google, uh, I don't know, Duluth, <laughs> uh, where I sometimes go for a special Bible conference. But the, the Duluth that I'm going to is in Minnesota. But there are a number of Duluths, believe it or not, scattered throughout the United States. It's the same with this name Bethlehem. There was a Bethlehem in the tribal area of Judah, and then there was another Bethlehem in more north in the Galilee area. And Micah chapter 5 verse 5 identifies the right Bethlehem within the tribe of Judah as the birthplace of Jesus. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. 
From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. This is what your Bible does. In advance, it will identify the right tribe and the right city that Jesus is going to be born in. That's the significance of that phrase, Bethlehem Ephratah. Not that Bethlehem up there, but this one down here in the tribal area of Judah. And we think, well, why Judah? Why not the tribal area of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi? And you would not have an answer to that question unless you were a student of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis and only the book of Genesis is going to explain this reality to you because you would think instinctively that the authority and the preeminence would go to the firstborn, Reuben. Well, he disqualified himself. Well, how about Simeon and Levi? They disqualified themselves. Well, who's left in the pecking order here? Uh, Judah is. So this becomes a great warning to us about excursions back into the sin nature. It will never eradicate your salvation if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it will take away countless privileges that God has on the doorstep for you that he wants to give you that you can't have because we made some sort of fleshly bad decision or lifestyle. You continue on there in verse 24, and now we have the sons that come from Rachel. It says the sons of Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin, uh, verse 18, was born already. He was born in the land of Canaan. Only one of the twelve born in the land of Canaan. All of the rest were born up north when uh, Jacob was sojourning in an area called Haran, suffering from economic justice brought against him through Laban, you'll remember. And the other son that is born through uh, uh, Rachel, in addition to Benjamin, is also Joseph. I mean, it's right there in verse 24. The sons of Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Joseph is going to become a big deal. It's going to become a big deal in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. All of these children, these sons, they're born into the world with a purpose. Joseph's purpose was to be strategically used by God to get the nation of Israel out of Canaan and effectively and successfully incubated in Egypt in an area called Goshen for 400 years. This is how God protected his nation from self-destructing had they remained in the land of Canaan and started to imitate the detestable practices of the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. God says, I'm going to get my people out into Egypt for 400 years. Joseph is the main guy. Abraham was born to bring forth the nation of Israel. Joseph was brought forth to preserve the nation of Israel. Not everybody in life has the same purpose. Moses, much later, would be born to bring the law to Israel and to get Israel out of Egypt. And then Joshua was born to get the nation of Israel 400 years later back into Canaan. All of them have different purposes. All of them have different functions. And one of the great discoveries of one's life is discovering what your purpose is. That's why I've entitled this The Purposeful Life. I can't give you that purpose. God alone can give you that purpose or purposes. Uh, None of us are here by accident. All of us were allowed by God to be born at a particular time in history. All of us were allowed in God to be born again spiritually by trusting in Christ. 
And as wonderful as the doctrine of salvation is, at some point you need to ask the Lord, why am I even here? Why, why did you allow me to hear the gospel so as to be saved? There must be some sort of purpose in it. And God is a God of purpose. You look at our universe and how it's designed. Different things have different purposes. Not everyone or everything does the exact same thing. Why am I here? Why, why do I exist? What is my purpose? Great questions to ask of the Lord, particularly as we move into the new year, 2024. Lord, what is your purpose for my individual life in the new year? And sometimes the Lord will say, well, I can't really tell you because your life is so crowded with your own purposes that you really don't have room for my purpose. It's kind of hard for me to pour water into a cup that's already full. And so this is the time of the year really to get before the Lord and say, Lord, I know I have a lot of plans and a different agenda, but what do you want? What's your plan? And whatever it takes, Lord, I'm willing to submit to it. You start to talk to the Lord that way, and you'll start to discover a dimension of a quality of life that maybe you didn't know existed. And this is what's happening to Joseph in chapters 37 through 50. He is walking out his purpose, and it's not all fun and games for Joseph from age 17 to age 30. He probably didn't even know what his purpose was, except in general terms. He received a vision as as a teenager. But once Joseph hits age 30, um, there's no doubt in my mind that he knew why he was there, why God had sovereignly worked in his life, why God had allowed him to become second in command of Egypt. And it has to do not with the birth of the nation, the nation had already been born, but the preservation of the nation in Goshen for 400 years. And I'm just thrilled by the fact that we are, Lord willing, going to be finishing chapter 35 today. Some people don't take me seriously on that. But then uh, chapter 6 is some some rough, rough treading there, the descendants of Esau. But I think, Lord willing, we'll be starting the new year in chapter 37. And what a privilege it's going to be in the year 2024 to really devote ourselves to the story of Joseph, uh, which is which is on the horizon. Sort of to uh, round out the list here, um, as you look down at verse 25, it says, and the sons of Billah. Rachel's maid were Dan and Naphtali. So with these marriages in Haran came the bridesmaid. One of them was named Billa, and through Jacob and Billa, two sons were born, Dan and Naphtali. And then just to make the list complete, as you look at verse 26, you have two sons born to the other bridesmaid, Zilpah. And it says there in verse 26, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, were Gad and Asher. So here come Gad and Asher. And this is how the sons of Jacob were born. It's not, um, there's a lot of, as we studied, a lot of treachery, trickery, deception that went on from Haran and from Laban in Haran, but it's a wonderful thing to learn that through all of the deception and trickery and missteps and goof-ups, that God got his way, (laughs) and these 12 were born. Not in the best of circumstances, but nevertheless, we now have the foundation for the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, your life might be a little messy But the wonderful thing about a messy life is walking with Christ and understanding the promise of Romans 8 that he causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called called according to his purpose. 
What is his purpose that we be conformed and transformed in daily life into the image of Jesus Christ? Notice the passage doesn't say all things are good. It says God works all things together for good. So as a Christian, you can claim this promise that everything that's happening in your life that's messy, even bad decisions that we may have made in the past, because there is a law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow many times. Sometimes we experience negative things because of bad decisions and we, we're repentant over it. And then there are other things that come into our lives that are totally outside of our control. But as you walk through life, which can be very messy, you have that promise from God that he will use everything in your life, if you're open to his leading, to conform and transform us into the image of his son. One of the great discoveries of the Christian life is understanding that God doesn't waste anything. He will use every single thing. He doesn't say it's good, necessarily, but he says he will use it together for good to achieve his ultimate objection in our lives, which is to conform us into the moral image of Jesus. It's a completely different way of looking at circumstances. When circumstances go south, we have a tendency to get very upset. When we ought to be saying, you know what, Lord, you brought this into my life and you're going to use it for your higher purpose. I don't know, I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I'm going to trust you through it. And so Gad and Asher are born and then you go down to the second part of verse 26. And you have sort of a concluding statement. It says, second half of verse 26, These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. They were born up north in Haran. The only exception here is Benjamin, who was the only one of Jacob's dozen who was actually born en route to Bethlehem in the promised land. And then this chapter concludes with the death of Isaac. Verses 27 through 29, you have a reunion of Isaac and Jacob. Verse 28, Isaac's, 27 rather, Isaac's total years. Verse 28, and then Isaac's death. Notice uh, the reunion between Isaac the father, and Jacob, the son. You see uh, an initial contact there. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father, Isaac. This is probably the first contact between Isaac and Jacob since Jacob returned to the promised land. Remember, he had been up in Haran for about 20 years, and now the two come together, father and son. This hypothetically could have been the first time that Isaac met Rachel, uh, Jacob's wife of choice. And notice that this is happening in a specific geographical area, verse 27. It says, uh, Jacob came to his father Isaac at memory of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. One of the things that's always fascinating me about the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, is its emphasis on um, geography. This is um, an area that is a little further south of Bethlehem. But it's just another indicator showing us where these events transpired. And the Bible, to me, doesn't read like a fiction book. It reads to me like it's real history involving real people in real geographical areas where you can actually document where those geographical areas are. And I mention this over and over again because... We're living in a culture that wants to drive a wedge 
between history and faith. The secularist thinks they have some kind of monopoly on real history. And they look at us as, oh, you're just people of faith. You know, you do your religion on Sunday and we'll take care of history in the university classrooms the rest of the time. And so we're living in a culture that wants to drive a wedge between faith and history, morality and history. Yet the Bible is set up to give us the principles of faith, to give us the principles of morality in a context which is historically and archaeologically credible. We are not reading here tall tales, Jack and the Beanstalk, veggie tales, fiction, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. We're not reading here stuff like that. We're reading about real people in real history where these events actually took place and they transpired. So what is happening here with the death and the burial of Isaac takes place a little bit further south of Bethlehem. And then you have verse 28, a record of Isaac's uh, total years. It says verse 28, now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So best I can tell is Isaac is the oldest living patriarch. Uh, Jacob uh, is probably 120 years old about this point in time. And Jacob, um, when he leaves with his dozen, Joseph, he already thought was dead, as, as we're going to study. But when he leaves with his dozen and sojourns to Egypt to find grain in the midst of famine in Egypt, then that great movement is going to take place in Genesis 46. Jacob, when that movement happened, was probably about 130 years old. In fact, over in Genesis 47 and verse 9, it says, So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, (laughs) nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. So in addition to noticing real geography, notice these real ages of people. And then finally you get to verse 29, which concludes the chapter with Isaac's death. And notice verse 29, it says, Isaac breathed his last and he died. And he was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So notice, first of all, Isaac's death, verse 29, first part of the verse. Now the days of Isaac, uh, excuse me, verse 29, Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. What does it mean when a person dies? Essentially, death is a separation. In fact, you'll see the separation If you go back just a little bit to Genesis 35, I believe it's verse um, 18, talking about the death of Rachel as Benjamin was being born in the same chapter. It says, it came about as her soul was departing, for she died. That is a, a, a tremendous explanation of what death is. When God designed human beings, he did not design us to die. He designed us to live forever. And as evidence of that, he gave us a soul or a suke, which is the heart of who a person is. Their intellect, emotions, will, temperament, volition, desires, personality, All of those things are bound up in what is called the soul. And according to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11, God has put eternity into the hearts of men. God did not design us to die. 
And that's why when we are in a situation where somebody near to us dies and they're not with us anymore, it's such a foreign concept. I mean, it's hard for us to understand. I was just talking to so-and-so last month and now they're not here. And it's just weird to us. And the reason it's weird is death is a enemy. God never designed us to die. And within that soul, uh, or the housing for the soul, is the body. The Greeks called it the, the soma, which is what we're like on the outside. And there's your five senses, you know, hearing, touch, taste, sight, etc., etc. It's what you look like on the outside. And the moment Adam and Eve sinned is the moment God said, from dust you are to dust you shall return. Genesis 3, verse 19, your body is going to go through a decaying process and it will go right back into the dirt from which it came. And at that point of death, the part of us that's designed to live forever separates from the body. The material and the immaterial separate. And you have a tremendous description of this back in verse 18 concerning the death of Rachel. It says it came about as her soul was departing. Departing from what? Departing from her body. And this is essentially what death is. It's a separation. In fact, if you were to go to the theological word book of the Old Testament and look up the Hebrew word for death, you'll see the word separation. The same with uh, the Greek lexicon, theers. Look up the Greek word for death, phonotos, and you'll get that same definition, a separation. The two separate. Now, for the believer, it's good news. Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. For the unbeliever, it's bad news. They go into that place of conscious torment. That's why Jesus said over and over again, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, think about eternity. Think about the fact that you're designed to live forever and trust me as Savior because only I can be the custodian of the soul, the part of you that will last forever and ever and ever somewhere, either in heaven, eternal bliss with God, or in Hades, hell, Gehenna, a place of eternal retribution. That's death. This is what Rachel is going through. This is what Isaac is going through. And in the final resurrection, yet future, the two come back together. Resurrection, reunion, death, separation. The soul goes back into a what we would call a resurrected body. Uh, for the, the good news is it's still going to be you, but you're going to look a lot better. Because it's the body or the soma with the curse pulled out of it. All the ailments of the body, fatigue, cancer, um, you know, broken bones, all of those things are a thing of the past because you're in a resurrected body of glory. And unbelievers too are placed in these resurrected bodies. And as their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, they are transported from Hades into the lake of fire where Satan had already been thrown, where the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown, and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. So what we have here is the separation of the Soma and the Suke, not just for Rachel, but for Isaac. Now, notice this expression here. It's very important. Verse 29, and he was gathered to his people. That's a common expression used at death for the patriarchs. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Genesis commentary says this, the phrase gathered to his people is used ten times and only in the Pentateuch. 
And he's got all of the verse numbers there where you can look up all these verses, but it's used of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, Moses, and then um, it goes on and it talks there about Aaron and Moses. This phrase is applied to them. Now, the first time this phrase was used, and you, you can look at his quote there, is in Genesis 25, verse 8, concerning Abraham. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 8 says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. That's the first time this expression, gathered to his people, is used. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, that's just kind of Abraham dying and his body was buried with the rest of his people. That cannot be the meaning. Because Abraham died in Hebron, in the land, what later would become the land of Israel. Where are his people? 350 miles to the east, modern-day Iraq, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. When it says Abraham was gathered to his people, it's not a statement that his body was shipped to Iraq and that's where his burial plot was. Because we know where he died and where he was buried. The exact same place Isaac and Sarah were buried in the land of Israel. So this is not some sort of physical statement of, well, he he just died and we shipped his body back to where he came from. Because where he came from was Ur of the Chaldeans and Abraham was never physically buried there. So with that being said, um, what is it talking about exactly then? Gathered to his people. It's a statement of the afterlife. It's a statement of how Abraham, in this case uh, Isaac, died and had a reunion with his ancestors who had already died. See that? That's the way it's used in Abraham's life. That's the way the statement is used here in Isaac's life. In other words, this becomes an actual statement of the afterlife found in the book of Genesis. When it says he was gathered to his people, it's talking about a heavenly celestial gathering where he was gathered with fellow believers in heaven upon death. Now, this is a big deal because of the direction of modern-day Old Testament evangelical scholarship, which denies the afterlife in the book of Genesis. Now, they'll say, well, the afterlife and the future resurrection, you've got to wait till the book of Daniel much later in time to get a description of the afterlife. And clearly you have a clearer one in the book of Daniel. Daniel, yet future, 6th century B.C., would write in a prophecy, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so modern-day Old Testament evangelical scholars say that's the first time you have a reference to the afterlife in the whole Old Testament. I'm saying to that nonsense. There are references to the afterlife, maybe not as clear as the Daniel reference, but when it talks about being gathered to his people and you understand where Abraham came from, that becomes a statement of the afterlife. And not only that, I don't have to wait till the book of Daniel to get an explanation of future resurrection. We know that that exists in the book of Genesis too. Well, where does it exist? It exists in Genesis 22, where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham says to those that were his attendants, we, meaning 
Abraham and Isaac will go to Mount Moriah. What's going to happen at Mount Moriah? Well, in Abraham's mind, Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. We, this is all first paragraph, Genesis 22. We will go to Mount Moriah and we are going to come back. Now, how can you come back with Isaac when God told you to take him to Mount Moriah and kill him? Abraham reasoned that even if he kills Isaac, the promises going through Isaac concerning a special nation, the nation of Israel, are so secure and so immutable that I guess God is going to have to raise Isaac from the dead. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, makes that commentary. It's not me making the commentary. It's what the book of Hebrews says about Genesis chapter 22, which means in Abraham's mind, he understood the concept of future resurrection. And this repetition of the expression gathered to his people, when you understand exactly what this is talking about, is a statement loaded with information about the afterlife. You know, it's it's unthinkable to me after having just visited Egypt, a, a similar culture that existed around the same period of time, that the Hebrews, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had no thought of the afterlife. Because I'll tell you something, the Egyptians sure did. I mean, you, it, it's tomb after tomb, Pharaoh after Pharaoh. Uh, what they wanted to look like in the afterlife is how they were buried. Uh, their whatever, uh, I don't know, furniture or, you know, accoutrements that they wanted to have in the afterlife are buried there with them. Their gold is buried there with them. Why would they do all that? Because they thought it was all going to go with them into the next world. In fact, as we were in Egypt, you know, touring these great places of archaeology like the pyramids, we had a a guide, and I don't know what level of evangelicalism she was at. She was actually Islamic, but she was a very good guide. And I said, I just asked her privately, did the Egyptians have any notion of an afterlife? And she kind of looked at me and said, notion of an afterlife, that was their whole world view. The whole Egyptian culture, which spans back to the time of Abraham, had a focus on the afterlife. And if the Egyptians had it, is it really that far afield to think that the Hebrews had one as well? So all this teaching that you're getting from these so-called evangelical seminaries and uh, cable television and all of these things where these scholars deny the afterlife in the book of Genesis. I don't believe any of it. Now, certainly you have to get further into the Bible to get a clear explanation of future resurrection and future afterlife. But the seeds of the doctrine are alive and well in the book of Genesis. The afterlife is real, folks. The afterlife is just as real as this life is right now. Just as nobody questions whether this world is real. Well, some do, I guess. Nobody in their right mind would question whether this world is real. The afterlife is just as real. In fact, in Hades, uh, the rich man and Lazarus went into Hades and they, they, they could read it. Luke 16, 19 through 31. They could think back on the former life. The unbeliever was warned about his, what was it, five brothers that were in unbelief. I don't want him to, them to end up here. Send someone back to warn them. I mean, there, there's memory. There's conversation. There's emotions. There's concern. And we know biblically there is an afterlife. I'm just trying to get us to see today that the doctrine is there as early as the book of Genesis. But notice uh, this expression here, as Isaac dies, it says he was full of days. 
He died, it says there, some translations say, at a good old age. A similar expression is used of Abraham and his death in Genesis 25 and verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. That's how Abraham left this world. Apparently that's how Isaac, with a similar expression, left this world. And to be completely frank with you, that's how I want to leave this world as well. I don't, I don't know the date of my death, but I sure want to be able to look back and say, you know, I invested my life, what fleeting time I had on the earth. I poured myself into the right cause, into the right things. Because, folks, there's a lot of causes out there competing for your attention. The issue is, are we pouring ourselves into God's cause? Because only God's cause is going to stand the test of time. I don't want to face my deathbed or be on my deathbed with my mind filled with regrets of what could have been if I simply had let the Lord have the way he wanted to have in my life. David, in as it's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 36, this is this comes out, I think, well in the NIV, which I don't use too frequently, but I like what the NIV says here. I think it's a good translation, at least on this verse. It says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation. He fell asleep and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. He fell asleep, he died, after he had served God's purpose in his generation. What a, what a privilege that is to leave this world saying, you know what, I, I've, I found God's purpose for my life. I pressed into it. And there's fruit as a result. I don't know what your purpose is. We all have different purposes, as I explained a little earlier. But the issue is, are we asking God for that purpose? And once it becomes clear what that purpose is, are we moving in that direction? Not everybody leaves the world this way. You know, Paul the Apostle, when he left this world, had... uh, Absolute confidence, not of his salvation. That was already a done deal. Your salvation is not determined by whether you find God's purpose for your life. But he left this world knowing that once he arrived in heaven, which he already understood was a done deal, he would be fully rewarded in heaven because he fit into God's purpose. He writes on his deathbed in Second Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. Now, that isn't salvation because we're saved by grace. It's a reward above and beyond salvation, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And I, I like this last line here. And not only to me but also to all. You mean me too, Paul? Yeah, you too. You mean us too, Paul, can leave life this way? Yeah, all of us can. Not only to me, but to also all who have loved his appearing. That's the purposeful life, isn't it? Most people on their deathbed can't leave this world thinking that way. Here's a famous quote from Mark Twain. I've used it before. This is what he said on his deathbed in his autobiography. Compare, just compare this sad language to Paul's language. He said, quote, A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. 
And that was before uh, Twitter. He wrote that. Look at that. Uh, Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Shames and humiliation bring down their prides and vanities. Those they love are taken from them. The joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, and misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead. Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. Longing for release is in their place. It comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. Where they achieved nothing. Where they were a mistake and a failure. And a foolishness. Where they left no sign that they have ever existed. A world that will lament them for a day and forget them forever. The language of Paul is so different. I've finished the course. I've fought the good fight. I'm leaving this world and I'll be fully rewarded in the next. And I think this is what it was like for Isaac when it says an old man of ripe age, dying a good old age, dying in a way where his life wasn't perfect. It's not like him and Abraham and the rest were mistake-free. They weren't sinless, but they were sinning less. They had pressed into that middle tense of their salvation, their progressive sanctification. And it's at this point that Isaac is buried. It says, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Uh, notice he's being buried by Jacob and Esau. This is probably the first time the brothers reconnect since Jacob's return from Padan Aram. They had reconciled earlier. But this is the first time the two brothers reconnect to bury their father in the land of Canaan, later to become the land of Israel. The true brothers reconnect perhaps for the last time in their lives. Isaac is buried in the cave of Machpelah, where Rebecca, Sarah, and Abraham were buried. The cave of Machpelah. You'll remember a burial site purchased by Abraham for his deceased wife, Sarah, within Canaan. Abraham, that was in Genesis 23 where he purchased that site. Genesis 25 is where Abraham himself was buried. And it says this in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 31. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah, and there they buried Isaac and his wife Rebecca. And there I buried Leah, he says. It's kind of interesting that Abraham and Isaac left this world with only a sliver of what God promised. Going back to God's initial dealings with Abraham, Abraham was promised a plot of real estate from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq. The only thing he really got was this burial plot. The burial plot, though, is the first fruits of greater things. What does this burial plot represent? It represents just a, a foretaste of everything you're going to possess one day. This is how the Holy Spirit functions in our lives. He is our first fruits. You have not yet received everything that God wants to give you in glorification, but you've got a piece of property that's a sliver of everything God wants to give. 
Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge, some of your translations say a down payment, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. What you have with the Holy Spirit is you have a down payment of everything God is going to deliver in glorification, just as this burial plot in Hebron represented a just a down payment on the entire promised land that would one day be Abraham, Abraham's and his descendants in the millennial kingdom. Once the ministry of the Spirit of God becomes resident in a person's life, you'll notice that God will sort of keep you on a tight leash. Have you noticed that? You just can't get away with some of the stuff you used to get away with before you were saved. And there's that convicting ministry of the Spirit that bothers you. And every time you feel that convicting ministry of the Spirit, you just say, thank you, Lord, because this is my down payment. The fact that that conviction is there and the fact that I'm even bothered about sin is just a little bit of a down payment in comparison to everything you want to give me in the next life. And so that completes chapter 35 and now it's chapter 36. Let's do that now. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And then as we move into the new year, the Joseph story. You know, if you're here and you don't know Christ personally and you never received this ministry of the Spirit, which is given at faith, our exhortation is to consider the claims of Jesus and everything he did for us 2,000 years ago, everything that we've been discussing in this sermon and in the at the Lord's table. These are all pictures of what Jesus did. Christianity is not a doing system. It's a done system. And the moment you trust, which means rely upon or have confidence in what Jesus did for you, just like that, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. So our exhortation for people is to respond to that convicting ministry of the Spirit, even as I'm talking by placing their faith in Christ and therefore becoming all you can be, uh, not just in this Christmas season, but in the new year. Uh, if anybody's here and they've never trusted in Christ, they can trust Christ now, just even where they're seated. If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk, shall we pray. Father, we're grateful for Genesis 35. The history that you've given us, how it speaks into our lives, how it's a light unto our path. Help us to walk these things out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.